Pixis Lab is already the name you trust for measuring fluorescent polymer without the worry of color or turbidity interference. Pixis Lab continues to innovate water treatment technology. You can now measure dissolved oxygen with two new stainless steel inline sensors, giving you versatility to a wide variety of water treatment markets. Need to measure glycol concentration? Check out Pixis Lab for their self-cleaning, extremely accurate stainless steel glycol inline sensor. It is sure to impress. And finally, six new ultra-low turbidity sensors that offer varying ranges from 0 to 1,000 NTUs. And they're ISO and EPA certified for your convenience. Pixis Lab, the company that has your back with better water treatment tools. To find out more about Pixis Lab's full line of products, go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash Pixis. Welcome to Scaling Up H2O, the podcast where we scale up on knowledge so we don't scale up our systems. My name is Trace Blackmore, your host for Scaling Up H2O. And Nation, back on episode 186 and 187, where Connor Parrish interviewed me, he asked me one of the questions about why do I do this show? And it's simple. I love this industry. This industry has been outstanding for me to have a career in. I learned about it from my father. This industry has helped me with my relationship with my father. And because we had the relationship within the water treatment industry, that helped all other things within our relationship. And of course, my father's not here anymore. So if it wasn't for water treatment, I don't think I ever would have made the connection with my dad if I were not in this industry. So I can thank water treatment for that. Water treatment has given me a lifestyle where I've been able to meet people that I would have never met before. Many of you out there listening, I consider friends because we've met, we've maybe even shared dinner, and now we call each other from time to time to help each other with issues that we're having. I can go on and on and on about how much water treatment being in the industry has meant to me, but I reflect back on the question that Connor asked me, and my mission is to raise the bar in the water treatment industry. As I said, water treatment has been so good to me, I want to return that to the industry. It's my hope that each and every episode that we bring you here at the Scaling Up H2O team, that that helps elevate you. Maybe you learned something. Maybe you're just thinking about something a little bit differently. But it's my hope that this podcast is the catalyst to help you become a better water treater and enjoy the industry that you are serving in. So if you have any ideas of how I can do that better, please let me know. If you've got some comments where you think we are doing a great job of that and you want to acknowledge something that you learned from the show, I'd love to hear that too. Anytime you have any comments about the show, I would love for you to go to our show ideas page and that's scalinguph2o.com and navigate over to the show ideas. There, you can either record your voice or you can write down what you have in the form. But folks, something that also helps us out and helps us reach other water treaters, other professionals in our industry, is your comments on the social media platforms that you're listening to this podcast. So if you could take a second and write a comment about what this podcast has done for you, what the podcast meant to you, what are some actions that you've taken, anything that you want to share. The podcast services really rely heavily on those comments and what they do, they make the podcast more findable. Is that a word? Findable? When people search for it, they're able to find it. And that way we're able to grow the Scaling Up Nation. Something that I've received tremendous comments over, people saying that they can't wait for the next James's challenge because they know they're becoming a better water treater each challenge, each week. So here is another James's challenge. 
Hello, Scaling Up Nation. The next James's challenge as we grow as an industrial water treatment professional, drop by drop, is... Dig through the AWT website at www.awt.org for resources. AWT stands for the Association of Water Technologies. They have a ton of resources available on their website developed by volunteers that make the AWT the vibrant organization that it is. Even if you aren't a member, there's still a lot there to find. Perhaps start under the resources menu and move on from there. Be sure to share your experience on LinkedIn by tagging it with hashtag JC21 and hashtag ScalingUpH2O. This is James McDonald, and I look forward to seeing what you share. Well, Nation, there it is, your next James's challenge. For all of you that have posted what you've been doing in completion of James's challenge, thank you for that. Please continue doing that. For those of you that are wondering how you do that, just like James said, hashtag JC21 and hashtag scaling up H2O. That way we can all share in your success. We can learn how you're taking the challenge and applying that. And that's going to spark some other ideas in somebody else. A rising tide raises all boats. We're all learning from each other. So I appreciate everybody doing that. Scaling Up Nation, I just want to get straight to the interview. I'm so excited. I know we're going to learn today. I know we're going to challenge the way we are already thinking about certain items. So Nation, please welcome our returning guest, Chris Nagel of Evapco. My lab partner today is returning guest, Chris Nagel of Avapco. Chris, so excited to have you back on Scaling Up H2O, and, and welcome. Well, thanks, Trace. I'm excited to be back on Scaling Up H2O, so thanks for inviting me. And before we jump into today's topic, I'd like to go back to our episode 37 we did together on white rust and passivation, because I noticed when I listened to the podcast that I had one misspeak or misspoke at uh, about the 1016 mark. And we were talking about the hot dip galvanized process for coils. And I incorrectly said that the base metal for galvanized coils was stainless steel. We do make 304 and 316 stainless steel coils, but they are not the coils that get hot dip galvanized. So the, the underlying steel for hot dip galvanized coils is actually carbon steel. Uh, fortunately, nobody's called me on it, uh, but I did want to clear that up since I had one technical glitch the last time around. I figured we'd get that out of the way and move on to today's topic. Well, we appreciate that. You know, that happens. I'll have something very clear in my head, and somehow when it comes out of my mouth and goes through this microphone, it's not what I intended to say. Although in, in your case, you know, you didn't get a call. Normally, I get dozens of calls and emails and, hey, Blackmore, what are you thinking? And in case, Nation, you have not listened to episode 37, we did that all the way back in April of 2018. That was a fantastic episode where you told us all things about white rust. And I would say it's one of our most listened to episodes. It's one of the episodes that people said that has helped them the most. Because what you did, you really explained the phenomenon that was going on. And you gave it from your perspective and I have to say, I said this in that episode, I'll say it again. I have uh, worked with a lot of people that make equipment. I have never worked with somebody that has the water treatment experience that you do and has the desire to bring the equipment and the water technologists together to make sure that we're working as a partnership. And in that episode, you showed us exactly how to explain these items to the customer, how to give them better information so they can make better decisions. And I, I want to thank you for that because that was a great episode. And I guess I'll also thank you for all the great things that you're doing to make sure that we as water treaters understand the equipment better and all the cool things that you're doing there at Evapco. Well, thanks. That's very kind of you. We're excited to, you know, be a quality equipment manufacturer, but also have a water systems team. So hopefully today we'll do the same thing. Hopefully we can think about evaporative cooling in the context of Legionella bacteria and Legionnaires disease and maybe think about it differently than a uh, somebody that's a specialist in 
microbiology or an academic might think about it and really take the concepts of what the water treatment professional is treating and how they're doing it and the system that they're actually taking care of. Well, you brought up evaporative cooling and back on episode 137 and 138, we had Brett Alexander, also of Evapco, come in and educate the entire Scaling Up Nation that everything is not a cooling tower. And he did a great job with that. I know I have the habit of calling things a cooling tower just from being in our side of the industry for so long. And I thought I got out of that habit because you've helped me, Brett's helped me, and I've tried to educate the Scaling Up Nation. I was hosting a hang and somebody was talking about a fluid cooler and I called it a cooling tower. And almost everybody on that call said, you need to listen to episode 137 and 138 because you're not doing what Brett told you to do. Well, it just shows that uh, you're educating the nation and that we're making progress together. It is interesting coming from a water treatment background and then coming to an equipment company the number of our water treatment partners and people that I meet at AWT that'll call for an opinion on something and they'll say, we're treating a cooling tower. And I always kind of stop there and say, okay, let's make sure we're treating a cooling tower. Um, When you think about cooling equipment, obviously there's dry coolers, which wouldn't need water treatment other than the closed loop. But when we think about uh, other types that we would be thinking about from a water treatment standpoint, There's really four types, and if we think about them uh, alphabetically, it would be uh, adiabatic, which are gaining popularity, what I would call a closed-circuit cooler, or you just referred to as a fluid cooler. Uh, You could use either term there. There's also evaporative condensers, and then there's the open cooling towers. And I like to say open cooling towers because it helps people understand that the water that's going through the tower is also going into the building and serving a function at a plate and frame heat exchanger or a chiller. So it's one big open loop that's rejecting the heat. When we talk about the closed circuit coolers or the evaporative condensers, they tend to have a coil or they have a coil and inside the coil is either water or a glycol water mixture that's going back to serve the process in the building. So the spray water for a cooler or a fluid cooler is a much smaller body higher turnover. So that has implications for which biocides we might pick, um, how we might set up our feeding control. And then the other category is the evaporative condenser. And evaporative condensers uh, look just like a cooler or a fluid core, the difference being on what's inside the coil. So instead of that water or water glycol mix, now we have a refrigerant, uh, usually ammonia, but there are other refrigerants. So that can also uh, be useful information for a water treatment professional because compared to a fluid cooler or a closed circuit cooler, the skin temperature at the top of the coil of the condenser tends to be much higher. So we want to think about that when we're selecting our inhibitors and our cycles of concentration and those kind of things. Yeah, it's great information. And if we're telling you exactly what it is that we're treating equipment-wise, then you're able to give us better information. So we're just communicating better together. Correct. And, and um, when we stop thinking of everything as a cooling tower, we can fine-tune our programs and um, think in terms of how the water is actually being used in that process. And it's really no different than if you have a, an open cooling tower at a hospital is maybe treated differently than an open cooling tower at a power plant or a refinery, right? Um, So they're all variations, but it's important for the water treatment professional to think about what is this equipment I'm actually treating? Let's get the right name so that we can communicate effectively and get the right program. So Nation, you heard it here. If you have not listened to episode 137 and 138, prepare to be educated so we can communicate better. I want to say it was about this time last year, you called me and said you were thinking about submitting an abstract to present at the AWT conference. And you had read a lot of information. You knew that there was a voice that wasn't getting heard, and you thought you could be that voice. So today, I thought we could talk about the actual presentation that you gave at the AWT. 
But I wanted to start out with the mindset that you were concerned that people were going to have as you were presenting. So do you mind telling us about that? Sure. And I I wouldn't necessarily frame it as I was concerned, but it was kind of interesting to me that so many people were focusing so much attention on evaporative cooling equipment in terms of Legionella bacteria and Legionnaire's disease almost to the exclusion of other water systems. So when I started interacting with some regulators and reading some documents that were out there that were referencing other papers and other documents, it kind of started me on this quest of, well, it's cited here. I'm going to go find that paper and actually read that paper and see what that paper says. And then that leads you down a bit of a rabbit hole. So when I was thinking about it, I was thinking about Again, in terms of water treatment professional, what do they need to know or what might they be interested in learning about to uh, bring value to their customer when we think in terms of a program team for ASHRAE 188? And what you find when you read all this information is there are a lot of kind of flags that have been put in the ground that aren't necessarily based on data or technical fact. They're just markers that somebody put in the ground. So that's fine if if we know they work, but it's a bit of a slippery slope if we start copying and pasting from one regulation to the next, or we start making assumptions about things based on what somebody else had said or what they do in another part of the country, right? So I really wanted to take a a step back and look at the history of it and also uh, take that with the knowledge of the equipment that we just discussed, that everything is in a cooling tower and come up with some things that a water treatment professional might either want to read on their own or think about as they work with their customers to minimize risk from all building water systems. I think it's safe to say that when the layman knows anything about Legionella, the first thing that they think of is the cooling tower. And a couple of years ago, we had an incident here in Atlanta And I remember the newscaster standing outside of a generator reporting on the cooling tower that she thought was behind her. So how do we fix that? Well, I think that through data and through sharing data and through education, I mean, the media is a tough situation, right? Because they're following what's been reported on in the past. And as you said, they may may or may not even know what the cooling tower is. Uh, The Atlanta one's a great example because the reading I've done on it, most of the people, if not all the people that had disease were traced to being near an ornamental fountain in the hotel. Yet when you read about it, you read that Legionella was found in the ornamental fountain and in the cooling tower, right? So one of the things to keep in mind is just because we find Legionella in a cooling tower doesn't mean that that's the source of disease, right? And that's a perfect example of if we don't have a whole building, all water system endpoint mindset, we could go find that Legionella in the cooling tower and assume that that's the, the source of the disease. When in fact, in that particular case, it likely wasn't. Chris, why do you think that Legionella is synonymous with cooling towers? Well, that's a great question. And I think we have to go back in time. And as you probably know, and most of the nation probably know, Legionnaire's disease got its name from a convention in Philadelphia in 1976 at what was then the Bellevue Stratford Hotel. And much like our current world COVID situation, this was a new disease. CDC knew they were looking for something, but they didn't know what they were looking for. And it was pretty exhaustive um, research effort by the CDC and others to, to figure it out. And, and they found this new bacteria. It wasn't really new bacteria. It was new to the scientific and water treatment community. And they had a problem in that there were three legionnaires who went to the convention and were in the hotel that passed away, unfortunately, from the disease. But there was also somebody on Broad Street near the hotel that passed away, unfortunately, from the disease, but wasn't part of the convention and hadn't been in that hotel. So even though Legionella bacteria was not found in the cooling tower, one of the speculations was it was aerosolized from the cooling tower, and that's where the disease came from. 
And given what was known at the time is probably a reasonable theory. And I think that started the train on the tracks of when you have this disease, go look at the cooling towers. More recently, I think it was 2016, I'd have to get the exact paper for you. There was a PLOS One article where some people took samples from that time, from the people that had passed away and did more modern DNA um, studies on it. And what they found was that the people in the hotel and the person on, on Broad Street both had serogroup one Legionella, but they were related but different strains. So that goes back to the concept that it, it's possible that that initial outbreak wasn't one single outbreak, that there were actually multiple sources, which is not that uncommon when you think about major cities and the distributed water systems that we're dealing with in major cities these days. So the government's gotten involved uh, all over the world, and they say that we need regulations to help protect people so other people's fate isn't like the people you just described in, in the last scenario. My question is, can we give credit to those regulations for reducing Legionnaires' disease in those areas? Well, for the paper, the AWT paper, and the presentation for the virtual conference, which I thought was very good given the, um, the environment AWT had to work with last fall, I focus primarily on two sets of regulations. The first is the French regulation of cooling towers, and that goes back to an outbreak that occurred in 2003, end of 2003, beginning of 2004. And the French government uh, started some regulations of cooling towers at that time. So we have about 10 years of data to look at in the case of France and regulation of just evaporative cooling systems. And what that data shows is the regulations have not produced a meaningful reduction in disease. In the case of uh, France, we looked at cases per 100,000 population, and there's some graphs in the paper. But the short story there is that the trend really hasn't gone down since those regulations were enacted. We also took a look at the more recent New York City regulation of cooling towers. And that was following several outbreaks that occurred in New York City in 2015. And during one of the outbreaks, which was in the July to August timeframe of 2015, New York City's health department suggested registration and regulation of cooling towers as a way to reduce uh, Legionnaires' disease in the city. That regulation was passed quite quickly. And we have about four years of data following that. And in the case of New York City, the four years before, so 2014, they were averaging about 200 cases uh, per year in the city. And the four years since, which would be 2016 to 2019, if my math's correct, they're actually up to about 450 cases per year. So the regulations, which are quite direct in telling water treatment people how to do their job, have not reduced disease. Disease is increasing, uh, not decreasing in New York City. Could it be that it stayed the same? It's just more people are looking for it, so there's more testing being done? Certainly, you could say that there's if there's more emphasis on testing, whether it be COVID or Legionella or anything else, we're going to find more cases. So that's certainly possible. And I wouldn't say that it's impossible for a cooling tower to be a source of a Legionella outbreak. We know that given the right conditions, that could occur. I think what it's saying is even if we say we're testing or we're looking for it more, the regulations aren't helping us go down, right? So if all these uh, disease cases were related to evaporative cooling equipment, and if we put in very stringent requirements on disinfections, testing, low action levels, then we should see either a stabilization or a decrease, right? And that's not what the data shows. And I think that makes sense because if we think about it, what's the most likely way that Legionella bacteria gets into the fountain in the hotel in Atlanta or into a building water system in New York City? And the answer to that is the distributed water system, right? So the problem with um, the distributed water system is if you test once a month, most of the time you're not going to find anything because 
the release in a distributed system is going to be due to an upset condition or a change condition, right? So I refer to it as a seeding event. And it's not going on all the time. So we go look for it. We don't find it. We go look for it. We don't find it. I think AWT's uh, cooling tower committee is doing some interesting work on that because they have some people that are actually going and looking at the source water. And I think if you do that exercise, you see is that it is in New York City's potable water system. It's not always in the water system. Um, and all of these endpoints are essentially spots for it to amplify and then be released and have somebody inhale it or aspirate it. The CDC data supports that most of the cases come from the distributed water system. But if we look at the law that was passed in New York, there, there's nothing that covers that. If it was written again today, do you think that that would have been included? It's hard to know. There is more work going on in that uh, area in some other states. And I can't say that I've kept up with all the legislation. I know at the time, and and you can almost uh, have empathy for the people at the health department, right? We got this outbreak. It's the middle of the summer. We think it's cooling towers. Let's go do something quick with the cooling towers to get it under control. The city actually stated, the health department stated that the city water wasn't uh, affected, I believe was the term they used, by Legionella bacteria, which is clearly not the case. But they were very focused on not looking at the city water at that time. I think as we go forward and more situations like their regulations show that just looking at cooling towers isn't effective at bringing down the rate of disease, there's going to be a more thoughtful implementation of a broader approach as suggested in ASHRAE 188. I hope you're right, because I know a lot of cities are considering legislation like this and they're using New York as the example. Right. And that's kind of what got me into this whole read papers and look at cited works was uh, I was working with the folks in the city of Vancouver and they were modeling their proposals somewhat on New York City. And fortunately for Vancouver, they have a much lower incidence rate than New York City. And that makes sense. It's a newer city. The infrastructure isn't as old. And it was Almost the mindset of, well, it may not be effective, but if it you know, stops an outbreak, then it's worth it. And I think everybody in the nation would agree that we don't want more disease and we don't want more outbreaks. But as you mentioned, the CDC has said for years that most of the disease is not outbreak related. It's sporadic, right? So if we want to get at the big number, most of the disease, we have to start looking more broadly at all building water systems and the supply of water coming to the building. So hopefully there's some regulators that are listening to this podcast and they can apply some of the things that we're talking about to hopefully the regulations that they are trying to craft right now. I want to go back to evaporative cooling and you did a tremendous amount of research looking at regulations, looking at papers that were written. What were your findings when it came to evaporative cooling and Legionella? Well, I think the first thing we want to think about is something called a drift eliminator. So a drift eliminator is a component in an evaporatively cooled system, not adiabatic, but all the other ones we've talked about, that is placed uh, above the water flow and below the air discharge. So for my paper, I found a paper by Ken Hennon and David Wheeler for CTI, and I like their definition, so I'm going to quote that if I may. Baffles called drift eliminators are placed between the nozzles and the fan to minimize, through inertial impaction, the amount of entrained water droplets that leave the cooling tower and are discharged into the atmosphere. That's their quote. So if we think about it in generic terms, the drift eliminators there are there to minimize the amount of recirculating water that goes out the top of the tower, right? So if we go back to 2003-2004, the French regulations at that time uh, when they started regulating cooling towers, they called for drift eliminators that had an efficiency of 0.01%. Now, whether or not the tower that was implicated in that outbreak had 
that high efficiency of drift eliminator or not, the papers don't really say. It was an old industrial tower, so it's possible it was even worse than that, right? And if we look at many of the cited works where there's a clear connection between a cooling tower and an outbreak in, in that time period, what we find is these towers tended to have uh, zero group one counts in the thousands, whether it was a thousand CFU per milliliter or up to 10,000 CFU per milliliter in the French case. So one of the things that the people that are striving to have one action level may not fully understand about cooling towers is there's been great advancement in the design of uh, drift eliminators since that time. So many of these papers are from the you know 70s, 80s, and 90s, where we would have these older drift eliminators capable of 0.01% of the recirculation rate. Most of the towers that you and your team or the nation are going to be treating today were probably built after the 90s. And uh, since that time, drift eliminators now are capable of reducing drift to 0.005% or even down to 0.001%. So it's an order of magnitude improvement in drift eliminator technology, which results in an order of magnitude less drift getting out of the tower. And that's something that we really need to think about when we're setting up our water management plan, because if we have these higher efficiency drift eliminators and less water is getting out of the tower, then uh, if there's any Legionella bacteria in, entrained in that drift, getting out of the tower as well. The other interesting thing when you read some of the papers by people looking at drift is the vast majority of drift exiting a cooling tower is in droplet sizes that are too large to be inhaled into the lung. So if we think about that, we now have an improvement in drift eliminator technology and we have most of the drift coming out of a tower is 100, 1,000 times larger than respirable. Now, I'm not a doctor, but my understanding is you need something in the less than 10 micron and maybe less than 5 micron size to be able to deeply inhale it into the lungs. And what that tells us is even if we have a little bit of Legionella in a modern tower, not much of it's getting out. And the amount that's getting out actually has to evaporate to a respirable size before it could create any disease. So I think the drift eliminator and drift eliminator technology is something that the water treatment guys really want to think about. Because if I was setting control limits or action levels for a customer's tower and I had an old tower with old drift eliminators, I would probably have a lower number that I'm going to take action at than if I had a modern tower with better drift eliminators. That makes sense. I think that makes perfect sense. In fact, it got me thinking back to when I used to train OSHA. And the the first thing you look for when you inspect a facility for OSHA and, and potential issues that can hurt people is how do you mechanically remove the issue so it's just totally out of the equation? And it seems like that's what you've done here in your paper. We've always looked at, okay, how do we treat the water to stop the transmission of Legionella. But now we're looking, okay, how can we better equip the cooling tower, the, the device, so it doesn't get out of the machine itself? Correct. And so when we understand that, that the drift rates are so low and that the droplet sizes are mostly too large to be inhaled, that gives us some cushion or comfort that we don't need to fall into the crowd of lower positivity means less outbreaks. It doesn't or that you need a very low or non-detect level to minimize risk, which you don't. But you mentioned also the cooling programs, right? So there's this, been this increase in eliminator efficiency and technology. So then we might take it to the water professional's perspective and say, what could I do to mess that up, right? And there was also an interesting paper that came out. I'll have to dig it up. I think it was a CTI paper. But they looked at the impact of uh, surfactants on drift eliminator performance. So this is one of the things I touched on for the water treatment community. If we're feeding things like surfactants or biodispersants or even a non-oxidizing biocide that has foaming potential, we need to do that in the context of how are we setting up our feeding control to make sure we're not overfeeding? And how are we setting it up based on a knowledge of how much water is in the system? 
And as a young water treatment guy years ago, I made this mistake myself. We had a quat-based non-oxidizer. Back then, we didn't use oxidizers in, in the CNI market. We used dual non-oxidizers. And we had a quat-based product, and I was feeding it to a cooling tower system at a hospital. And, you know, every now and again, we'd give it a slug. Then we knew it would foam a little. Well, without thinking, I put the same slug into a small fluid cooler that was in the courtyard outside the hospital's canteen or restaurant. And I want to let you know, I made it snow in the middle of the summer. And the doctors and nurses were pressed to the window watching this thing blow foam all over the courtyard. Of course, our anti-foam was up on the roof, so we had quite a bit of time to go get the anti-foam and come back. I waded in about knee-deep to get the anti-foam into this fluid core. So the, the moral of my mistake in the story is make sure you understand your system volume, right? An open cooling tower is going to have more water in it than a condenser or a cooler with an integral sump. And we don't want to be overfeeding products that change the surface tension of the water because we may have a negative impact on the drift eliminator efficiency, which would mean we'd actually be letting more water out with the discharge. I have to tell you, as a water treater, you know, surfactants just play such an important role in keeping the, the system clean. And, you know, I'm the math guy for AWT, so I can't put anything into the system without calculating how much water we have and are we dosing that properly. But I want to thank you for allowing the nation to understand how important that is. And just because so many ounces works in System X, it's not necessarily going to work in System Y. We're water treaters. We need to know how much water we're treating. Exactly. And, you know, sometimes we learn through mistakes. I certainly did in that example from when I was a young water treater. And you don't tend to make those mistakes over and over again. But I think it is important for people to think about program they're selecting and the equipment and making sure that we're not uh, overfeeding some of those things in a way that's going to take away the advantage that we have with modern drift eliminator. Chris, is there an amount of, let's say, CFUs of Legionella bacteria that's virtually impossible to get out of uh, modern-day drift eliminators? Yeah, I might phrase it a little bit differently. I think about it in terms of the drift eliminator discussion we had. To put it into some kind of context for you, if I had a um, modern-day cooling tower and I had 500 CFU per milliliter of Legionella in my water, some might say, well, that's a high risk. I would say it depends on the serogroup. But if we say, okay, well, that's a fair amount, and then we take an older tower with the less efficient drift eliminators, the ones where the papers are saying 1,000 to 10,000 will cause an outbreak, if that older tower had 50 CFUs in it, it would actually be a higher risk than the modern tower with the 500 CFUs in it. So what we need to understand is that uh, having very low positive test results in your tower shouldn't have you running from the building screaming, right? Low levels are in a modern tower are not an indicator of an outbreak or a potential outbreak. So when I talk to people about it, I like Dr. Miller's work from, I think it's environmental technology. Let me see if I can find it for you. Environmental safety technologies. They have a Legionella report interpretations and recommendation guide that I find very handy because they break down non-potable, like decorative fountains and cooling towers, and then potable into different categories. And they go from very low risk to very high risk in five columns. And they distinguish, which I think is useful, between serogroup one, which we know where most of the uh, disease comes from, and all the other serogroups. So to me, I find that his moderate risk, low risk, and, and very low risk, if I was in those categories as a water treater, I'd be very comfortable with modern cooling equipment. Certainly, if you start to see thousands of CFU, you want to take some action. And you and your customer can come up with where's the right break and do we want to consider non-Sura Group 1 versus Sura Group 1 as Dr. Miller's work does. I'd encourage you to do that. But every company and every customer is going to have a different interpretation of how they want to run their water management program. Well, it seems like most of the world has leaned to prescribed, if 
I have so much CFUs do this. Mm -hmm. And if it's between this and this, do that. Right. It sounds like that's something we need to get away from. So I'm curious, how would you evaluate a cooling tower and what type of prescriptions would you get uh, depending on what that cooling tower has as far as its equipment, its drift eliminators, and what would you tell the customer to do if they were to test positive for a certain level of Legionella bacteria? Yeah, so you want to start with that understanding of do I have a cooler, do I have a condenser, do I have a tower? And then you want to go from there to is it old and not well-maintained or is it new and well-maintained or is it somewhere in between, right? One of the interesting things about the water treatment profession is over the years, people almost think the water treatment guy is running their plant for them. And in most cases, not all, I'm sure you have different examples, but in a lot of cases, the water treater is only on site once a month, right? So really the water treater is there to provide a service, make sure things are going well and be a double check, not be the maintenance person. So I would evaluate my customer's situation on how well do they take care of their equipment because that's part of it. And then how new and modern is their equipment? If I have new modern equipment and I have an automated feed and control system where somebody like Trace has done the calculations and I know I'm feeding the right amounts, Low and, and to me, if I have a zero group one reading of less than 100, I'm not getting very excited about it. You know, there's some great articles in the uh, analyst technical supplement from 2013 where people that are smarter about Legionella testing than I am talk about the uh, problems with precision, accuracy, and repeatability in that testing, right? So over my career, I've done split sampling and sent samples to different labs. And you can send split samples to different labs and get slightly different results, right? So if I set a really artificially low action level, like 10 CFU or 50 CFU, I'm creating a do loop of work that's not really reducing risk. So my answer would be, I like I said, I like Dr. Miller's work where I consider non-sera group one in one control range and sera group one in another control range. And if I think back to the fact that those old towers with less efficient drift eliminators had thousands of CFU in them, and I know there's at least a 10x reduction, that gives me comfort because Dr. Miller's recommendations might even be a little bit conservative once we factor in that drift eliminator efficiency. Speaking of drift eliminators, we all have cooling towers out there that the drift eliminators have probably failed. So I can't imagine what their efficiency actually is. Probably built way before the time period that you're referring to. Can we retrofit those? You can. And uh, that can be a great way to um, reduce risk. You know, you want to make sure you do it in consultation with an equipment guy to make sure that you're not creating problems with airflow through the unit. But one of the things that I've encouraged people in the nation to do and, and AWT members to do is have the, the inspection of those drift eliminators be part of your 188 program, right? So physically have somebody go out and inspect them, I don't know, once a year, twice a year, because some of this equipment goes up on the roof or out on structural steel and nobody ever goes and looks at it. So in the paper from CTI, they said the number one thing that goes wrong with drift eliminators is they're not either put in right or they're broken, right? So that's something we can do with the customer to help make sure that they're maintaining their equipment so it works the way it should. And as you said, if I had an old tower with old drift eliminators and I was able to update it to more modern drift eliminators, I, that's probably the biggest thing you can do as a water treater to reduce risk. I think I've seen the most damage done to the drift eliminators when a contractor comes in and they clean them and they use a pressure washer and they totally destroy the drift eliminator. What should they be doing? Well, uh, certainly uh, pressure washing equipment is a delicate art form. And um, I can't say that every contractor or every vendor or every water treatment professional always has the right PSI setting on their pressure washer, but most of the components that aren't coils or casings in these things are uh, a form of plastic. So, you know, we can't pressure wash like we're pressure washing uh, cement board. And so cleaning them up is okay, 
but there's other ways you can do it too. You can you can soak them in the basin as one example. We have people that are concerned about salts of evaporation building up on the outside of the air inlet louvers. And they say, oh, it's a problem with my water treatment program. Well, it really isn't because it's not a wetted surface, right? But what you find is if you have a spare and you take that one and you lay it in the basin, all that stuff will redissolve and you're good to go. So pressure washing can be okay, but you got to be very careful with the PSI. And also, you're going to have a hard time really getting down all the way into a fill pack or a, or a drift eliminator with a pressure washer. You're, you can get the top and bottom, but you're not going to get that all the way in there. So maybe soaking them with some surfactant or something else might be a, a gentler way to make sure that we're not busting up the equipment. You just mentioned tower louvers because we're making sure we're communicating properly. What's the difference between a drift eliminator and a tower louver? Okay, so in a counterflow cooling tower, we're going to have louvers on the outside, and that's where the air is sucked into the unit, right? And it's called a counterflow because the air is going from the bottom to the top, counter to the water falling from the top to the bottom. So the air inlet louver would be. It's usually plastic again, but that's how air is getting into the tower to come in contact with the water to allow the evaporation to to cool the water. So the drift eliminators are going to be above all your wetted surfaces, and they're they're typically uh, between your spray nozzle or however the water is falling through the tower or the cooler and your fan if it's an induced draft. But it's the last thing you would see on a force draft unit. You know, in industrial refrigeration, they have a lot of force drafts where the fans are in the side and they're blowing air up through. The top of those units, if you go walk on them, you're walking on the drift eliminators. If you take the drift eliminators off those units, you'll see the spray nozzles in the top of the coil bundle. Something I always recommend to customers is what you just mentioned. When they're buying a new cooling tower, buy an extra louver. Keep it in the basin. The products that we're using, it's going to keep it clean, and you just rotate those out every month. I tell that to everybody that's considering a new cooling tower. The number of people that have actually done that, I can count on one hand and have plenty of room left over. What can I tell them to maybe make that more successful? That's a tough one because, you know, there's a wide variation in both equipment maintenance and water treatment from facility to facility. So some customers are very proactive and very maintenance focused and others less so. And I'm sure you see that on the, on the water treatment side as well. So that's why I think from a water treater standpoint, it's not really their core competency or core responsibility. But that's why I like to bring those maintenance items into the 188 plan, because then it's part of the risk minimization, or as you had said, how do we mistake-proof the system a little bit? And uh, if we can get people looking at the equipment once or twice a year, it makes a uh, huge difference in the maintenance of that equipment, which then makes it much easier for the water treatment professional to keep the system running well. I'm reminded of a story when I first started in water treatment. So you shared your foaming story. By the way, I have one of those too. I think we all have one of those stories. But I remember I I was a young water treater and I'd sold a couple of accounts and I got a phone call from one of my customers and they told me their cooling tower was on fire and they've never had this issue before. I've taken it over. I put my water treatment products in there and now they've got this problem. Well, of course it wasn't on fire. They were seeing the plume. And I know other water treaters have have gotten calls like that. I think those are hilarious. But what is the plume and can it spread Legionella? Yeah, that's a great question. And even some of the regulations I researched don't have this right technically. So plume um, comes from the operation of the tower. As we said, a cooling tower or evaporative cooling unit will reject heat through the evaporation of H2O. And during certain atmospheric conditions, the supersaturated discharge air that's coming out can form a visible plume. Plume and drift are completely different. So to answer your question, plume cannot create a risk for Legionella because it's water vapor. It's not water droplets, right? So we want to distinguish between plume, which is typically visible 
at parts of the year with certain atmospheric conditions and certain heat loads on the equipment and drift, which is a small percentage of the recirculating rate, whether you can see it or not. Because what we're concerned about is the water droplets. We're not worried about evaporated water, which is what the plume is. And I'm convinced that God made the plume to make it easier for us to find future customers. That, and it's not bad when you have a deaerator at the plant either sometimes. Exactly. Chris, you've mentioned a bunch of papers that you did some research. Do you mind just going over what are some of the papers that you recommend that water treaters get familiar with, or at least know that they're out there? Sure. So if we think about the question of drift eliminators and older designs and newer designs, and what does that mean to our water management plan, the paper that I would recommend is an IWC paper. It's IWC-08-21, and it's entitled Cooling Towers Drift and Legionellosis. And it really would give a water treater a good understanding of how cooling towers operate, how drift is part of that, how drift eliminators impact that, and how much longer you need to be near a modern tower to have the chance of inhaling one bacteria than you would an older style unit. So that can be purchased, I think it's $10 on the IWC website. That's certainly a good one. The one I mentioned in my presentation and comes back to this idea of surfactants, biodispersants, thought it was really well done. That's a CTI paper and it's CTI technical paper TP20-19 and it's entitled Impact of Water Surface Tension on Drift Eliminators. And it was put together by some gentlemen from Hamoun Thermal in Europe. And it was really interesting to me, even being in the equipment field to think about because it, it wasn't something I had thought about before I read their paper. So if you're interested in kind of that question of and my drift eliminators, I think that's a good read. For people that want to go back in time a little bit, there's a good paper from a 1994, 93-94 outbreak at a hospital in the state of Delaware. And what's interesting in that paper is it does a good job of showing how a point source, like a cooling tower or an ornamental fountain, what an outbreak from a point source looks like. And what's unique about point source outbreaks is the farther you get from the point source, the uh, incidence of disease goes down. And that's different than a distributed source where you could have it all over the city if it's in the piping water. That was in the International Journal of Epidemiology in 1999, uh, and it's called a community outbreak of Legionnaires' disease linked to hospital cooling towers. Um, and they're and they're calculating a dose a dose of exposure and response. So it's pretty interesting if you want to think of in terms of what's that point source outbreak look like. Then the one of my favorites really is the French story that led to the French regulation. That was in the Journal of Infectious Disease in 2006, and it's entitled A Community-Wide Outbreak of Legionnaires' Disease Linked to Industrial Cooling Towers, How Far Can Contaminated Aerosols Spread? And the really interesting thing here is in the title, we're saying it's cooling towers. And then when you read the, the paper, you find out that Legionella likely got into the cooling tower from a wastewater basin that was contaminated that had aerators on it, right? So it's, it's one of those things, again, uh, even if we find it in the cooling tower and even if the cooling tower can be contributing to the problem, is that really the source of the problem, right? Where's the, how's the Legionella getting into the cooling tower? And then, as I mentioned, I really like the, the fall 2013 technical supplement of the analyst. Some of the papers in there or some of the topics in there about um, Legionella testing and people that are smarter than me talking about is it an absolute number? So in water treatment, a lot of times we're trained. We do pinks and blues, we get an answer, right? If the answer doesn't make sense, maybe we rerun the test. But most of the time we get an answer and that's the answer. And I think when we talk about plate counting and that kind of stuff, it's an interpretation of an answer. So I'm not saying it's not the right answer, but it's not an absolute answer, right? And when you read the papers on uh, how they actually do the testing, and you read some of the papers where they're comparing different test methods, you find that you can have more than one answer for a split sample. And we've seen that in real life as well. 
Well, and then, of course, there's your paper that you presented at last year's Association of Water Technologies Conference. If it's okay with you, I'd like to put on our show notes page so everybody can read what we're talking about. Sure, it's fine with me. I, I haven't talked to AWT, and I don't know uh, what their schedule might be to put it in the analyst. Um, but certainly, if we had uh, the AWT's okay, it's, it's fine with me. Um, hopefully, people will find it interesting. Uh, it certainly takes parts from these other papers and that I've talked about. Hopefully, it'll help to focus water treatment professionals on this concept of a broader 188 approach to really help drive down risk and drive down disease. And that's, I think, the message they take out of that paper, along with some of the history and some of the data to support thinking in those terms. Chris, what's the one message you want to make crystal clear on today's interview? Well, the the high-level message I would have is Legionella bacteria and Legionnaire's disease is not a cooling tower problem. It's a distributed water modern society problem. So going back to your thing, you know, an outbreak can happen from a cooling tower if it's not properly maintained, but most of the cases aren't happening that way. So we need to go back and say, you know, how do we bring down the sporadic incidents? How do we bring down the case number? How do we get New York City under 200 instead of under 450, right? And that's the broader approach that I think we would want people to understand. Also, the other thing I would want them to understand is a low positive test is not a reason to set your hair on fire. You should have action levels that are appropriate for the equipment you're treating. It may be you choose to have a lower action level for a hospital or a nursing home than you do another building, but certainly you want to think in terms of reasonable action levels so that you're not doing what happens sometimes in New York, preventative high oxidizers, right? We've, we've seen stainless steel basins where guys are dumping granular oxidizers in and corroding the basin, the chloride pitting, as part of just normal business, right? And um, we don't need to rely on oxidizers and we don't have to overreact to low test results. Well, Chris, one of the missions that I have with this podcast is to educate the Scaling Up Nation. I have no doubt that we have done that today. So thank you so much for for helping us understand more. Uh, One, we don't call everything a cooling tower. And then how we need to be looking at Legionella bacteria in reference to the cooling tower. But I'm not quite done with you yet. I do have some lightning round questions. Now, you did very well with these questions when you came on episode 37. So I'm sure you're going to do well with these, but they are different. So question number one, what's on your bucket list? You know, coming out of the year we just had in 2020 and COVID, I I have a pretty simple near-term bucket list. I'm excited to be able to get back out in the field with customers and with water treatment professionals and to host training events and uh, travel a little bit. You know, that's not um, like a life's bucket list, but since we've been, uh, you know, socially distancing and spending a lot of time at home, I'm really looking forward to getting back to a little bit more It's interesting, at the beginning of 2020, one of my personal goals was to have less business travel. Really, it got to the point where uh, I kind of missed it. And, you know, unlike the uh, nation, most of my travels on airplanes, I know a lot in the nation have a lot of windshield time. So I'm actually looking forward to, you know, being able to see you and your team in person. I'm looking forward to uh, the AWT convention being live in Rhode Island next fall. So it's really focused me on kind of near-term things. As we go out a couple of years in uh, my career, hopefully we'll continue to grow the business in a positive way that's, that's good for our customers and our partners. And then uh, hopefully Brenda and I will get to the point where we can afford to uh, retire and travel a little bit and uh, spend a little bit more time together. What would you say your superpower is? Better not ask Brenda that question. Different (laughs) answers. But, uh, you know, as I think about my career, I think really the ability to learn over time is so critical. And um, to me, one of the things I realized was I was so success oriented and so goal oriented that I didn't always take time for 
what I call intentional kindness or, or recognizing the people you're working with every day. Um, so I don't, I'm not saying that's a superpower. I'm working to get better at it. But um, I think to me, the real thing is if you can learn and grow, and that's one of the great things about the Scaling Up podcast, it helps people turn that windshield time into thinking about things differently or thinking about things they might not have thought about. So hopefully my superpower will end up being that I was able to learn, get better and you know, be a better water treater, uh, be a better person, be a better husband, be a better father, all those kind of things. Well, now I'm going to give you access to my magic wand. And with this wand, you can change anything in the world. What would you change? Hmm. Boy, I should have something deep and meaningful for you. On, um, <laughs> I guess I guess it goes back to just uh, a little bit more kindness and a little bit less of the uh, some of the tribalism and uh, only talking to people that think the same way or believe the same things you do, right? Uh, we all have our faith beliefs and our political beliefs and those kind of things. And and just uh, I'd, I'd hope that certainly in our country, we could get to the point where we're able to listen to somebody that has a different viewpoint. We may not agree with them. They may not change our mind, but we can have a civil discussion about it and avoid uh, name calling and those kind of things. I think, you know, many people are ready for a little bit more of that. I love that answer. I think if we can take the time to listen to somebody, even if they have a differing opinion from what we have, we will quickly realize we always have more in common than we do different. That's right. And and if if water treatment hasn't taught you anything else, it should have taught you that there's always more to learn. There's always uh, people doing things you may not have thought of. Um, and the same thing happens in life, right? So we want to have uh, an openness to other points of view. Uh, they may not all be right for us, but if we can have that mindset and practice some intentional kindness in our day or slow down and remember to do that, I think our lives will be better and I think the people around us' lives will be better. Well, speaking of making lives better, you've made a lot of water treaters' lives better today. Thank you for coming on Scaling Up H2O for a second time. Well, I'm thrilled to be invited back. Um, I'm Glad I didn't blow the opportunity the first time in episode 37, and I really uh, appreciate all the time, effort, work you put into this for the community, and congratulate you again on your well-earned award from AWT this year. So Nation, are you thinking about the ways you are currently thinking about Legionella? about some of the recommendations that you've made or some of the recommendations that you've been given. And now with all this information, we're able to decide maybe we can do a better job within water management plans. Maybe we're able to do a better job because we have more information in educating the customer. So I hope this episode really got you thinking about that. And I have to tell you, Chris and all the guys in the water department over at Evapco, they are incredible. I mentioned back in episode 37 how impressed I was with their water lab. They have cooling towers that they have set up that they run water treatment programs on to see how things work, to see what recommendations they can give us the water treater so we can do a better job. The synergy that Avapco has had with the Association of Water Technologies has just been incredible. So for all you folks out there in Avapco, thank you for all the great information that you have been able to give to the water treatment community so we can make our programs better. A topic that came up when we were talking was knowing the volume of the system that you are treating. Now, as I mentioned, I'm the math guy. I get the privilege of teaching math at the Association of Water Technologies when we do the technical training each and every year. I get on the stage there and I get on a soapbox and I say, how can we tell ourselves that we are water treaters if we don't know the amount of water that we are treating. And Chris really drove that home today in his story. So I want you to think 
of all the systems that you're treating, do you know you're really treating for the volume of water? And if you have any questions on the volume of water in your system and how to figure that out, I talked about that back in episode 116. So you can review that episode. That will get you started on trying to figure out how much water is in your system. And folks, that was a James's challenge a few weeks back. So hopefully you're already thinking about that. But I have to tell you, if you don't know the amount of water that's in your system, are you really a water treater? I want you to ask yourselves that. Nation, as you heard, I asked Chris a different set of questions in the lightning round because he already answered the questions that I normally ask. And one of those questions was a bucket list. For those of you that aren't familiar with a bucket list, that's the things that you want to do before, quite frankly, you kick the bucket. I know that's kind of morbid to think about, but you know, it's going to happen with everybody. We all have certain things that we want to get accomplished. So instead of just waiting until there's no time left, use your imagination. What are the things that really excite you? What are the things that you want to do in your lifetime? And then make a list of it. Share that list with your closest friends and see how you guys can work together to make sure that you can accomplish those items. That's something I ask everybody that comes to work here at Blackmore Enterprises. I ask them if they have a bucket list. And if they say no, I encourage them to make one. And then as soon as they make one, or if they tell me they already have one, I asked if they don't mind letting me see it. And then we pick one item on that list that we are going to work on together. And hopefully we could get crossed off within the first year of them being here. It's a lot of fun for me. I feel like I'm helping them achieve some of their highest goals. They're enjoying things because they know that they're accomplishing what they want to get accomplished. So if you don't have a bucket list, I urge you to start working on one today. The next thing I want to urge you to do is tune in next week to a brand new episode of Scaling Up H2O. Nation, almost two years ago, I started the Rising Tide Mastermind. We have over four groups and a waiting list for a new group Folks, it is wildly successful. And what I mean by that is that we are able to process issues together and get new ideas about how we solve the issues that we all face day to day in ways that we might not have come up with on our own. Folks, look into the Rising Tide Mastermind to see if it is right for you by going to scalinguph2o.com forward slash mastermind If what you see looks interesting, schedule an appointment with me and we will see if the group is right for you and you are right for the group.